shit, shit, shit show. It's a fucking shit show. Shit Hello, dear shit shows. Happy shit show Saturday. Shit show. Shit show Saturday. Say that three times fast. Shit show Saturday. Shit show Saturday. Shit show Saturday. I did it. Um, really quickly, I just wanted to give a trigger warning as today's episode includes child sexual abuse. Um, not graphic, but in, it is mentioned uh, in the story. Um, love you all. Enjoy your day and enjoy the episode. This is a very powerful, powerful story. All right, y'all. Welcome back to Shit Show Saturday. And we're joined by a very, very special shit show to me. Welcome, shit show Alice. Hello. Hi. How are you feeling about being shit show Alice today? Oh, I guess I, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. A little, so, a little tentative, but it'll fine. be fun. You're good. You're good. So what song do you want played when you walk into a room? I have been thinking about that. Um, Isn't she lovely? Mm. I love that. And it's not what I like about that song is it's about our kids. And I think it's sort of like the anthem for adult children, because wouldn't we want our parents to feel that way? Yeah. 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 It's pretty cool. Mm. And it it always makes me happy every time I hear that song. And it makes me feel uh, special feelings toward my kids. it's a good anthem for our our cause agreed and i love me some stevie oh yeah absolutely so good i think my favorite song is sir duke oh i love that one yeah okay carbohydrate i am all sugar all the time so for a long time i ate a candy bar a day what's Uh, your favorite um i went back and forth between butterfinger and snickers so Uh my two and sometimes i go on a Reese's peanut butter cup binge that would be but yeah I'm I'm very much into sugar and candy and all things so what will you hand out for Halloween (laughs) we don't have any guests here no you won't have any we we might get one or two so um I try to buy good stuff um though no one will eat it here and I have food allergies I can't eat chocolate anymore unfortunately so I it probably be like Jolly Ranchers or something like that when did the chocolate thing happen? About five years ago. And it's um, dairy and egg. Um, and as soon as I took that out of my diet, oh my gosh, I felt so much better. And then I tried to bring it back. You know, the doctors encourage you to try that. And I got really sick. So my body liked being off of it. It's been better ever since. So this is going to make this next question kind of lame. Cheese. Um, I love provolone and Gouda. So do you ever have pizza? Like, will you ever, or you'll, it's just not worth it. Oh, we eat pizza, Um, but like with vegan cheese or something. Um, I do eat it with vegan cheese sometimes. Um, if we make homemade and Uh then we've gotten used to, if we go to a restaurant, we'll get half without any cheese and just the sauce and the, and the toppings. And that actually is pretty good. So it's like tomato pie. Yeah, it's really good. So I think it's okay. And I love all vegan cheese. There's only, there are only a couple brands that I don't like, but I have not been felt 
left out in any way. It's good. All of it's good. Um, okay. And then condiment. I like sriracha and salsa. Yeah. What kind of salsa? Um, I, I'm more of a pico de gallo girl, you know, uh-huh. like a little texture in there. And um, there's some good local brands here in the Portland area that I enjoy a lot. So do you have a special salsa that you like? I'm like a, I like a pineapple. I like a fruit. Like I like when there's fruit in it. Oh, I like mango. a pineapple or a mango or a peach salsa. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. There is no salsa. I don't like pretty much all of them. I don't, I'm not a big salon. I hate cilantro. Oh. So if it's, I know it's unfortunate, so. you know, that they can like gin in the, tw- I don't know if it's 23 and it must be 23 and me. That's like one thing that they can test is if you have the cilantro aversion. Really? Mm-hmm. Someone told me that it tastes like soap. People they- say that it, it, I mean, it just does not taste good. I wouldn't say it tastes like soap. So boy, we have a lot to get into, but so when did you realize that you were an adult child? Was it through the pod? Yeah. I, How did you find me? I found you. I, well, it, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I found you through a friend that came, a friend that I didn't see in person very often, just out of the blue. She, she had, was between jobs and she decided to drive out to where I worked, which was an hour and a half away from Portland. And she wanted to have lunch. So we had lunch and she has been an AA for years and years and years. And she told me she was 29 years and about to get her 30 year chip. And that's a big deal. So we got to talking about that. And she told me about, I knew about Al-Anon um, and she told me a few, oh, she gave me a few links of some speakers to listen to. And some of them were AA and one was Al-Anon. So I listened to them and then I was searching around in some, just in the related podcasts and what p- popped up was the recovery show. Mm. So I listened to that for a long time. I was probably two months listening to that almost every day because they have a lot of episodes that are kind of ones I hadn't heard yet. So I was binging on that a little bit. And then I had to go, th- uh, I had some sort of a COVID um, quarantine time where I was separate from my family over Christmas. It was really mm. hard. I have elderly parents and I needed to keep them safe. So I decided to not, um, I had an apartment in the town where I worked during the week and came home on the weekend. So I decided to stay at that apartment and I was by myself during the quarantine period. So I found your podcast and I binged and I binged and I binged. Did So did you hear me on the recovery show? Is that how you found it? No, no. no. Oh, okay. It actually, you know, on my, I think I listened through Google podcasts and it said something like, if you like this one, then you'll like this one. And it, it, you, you came up and pretty soon I was listening to yours all exclusively. Mm. And I got caught up within a month, I think. <laughs> and it really helped me because I had just gone through what was my bottom. Um, and I've been at the, in this healing game for over 30 years, but what happened last fall was really interesting for me. And it was, it, it led to me getting to my bottom and that was, um, well, I don't know. I, I'm going to be jumping around in my story. No, go let's, I like um, to jump around. I was, um, my story is, well, let's just go to my story and then I'll tell you about my bottom. How about that? Um, I, I was in college and it must have been my junior year, something like that, somewhere around 1990. And I was um, 
Where'd you go to school? U University of Oregon. Uh-huh. Go Ducks. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, and I had gotten into the counseling. You know, they have the free counseling center there. So I was having a little bit of, I was grieving over a few things. And, and I think I realized at the time that what I was grieving over, my reaction was bigger than what had really happened, you know. Mm-hmm but I still couldn't figure it out. I was kind of locked up, frozen um, with my emotions over some of these things that had happened. What had happened? Well, I, um, I grew up very active in my uh, church youth group. And so I was in over a period of time in my church and I actually ended up working for a, as a church secretary over the summer, which is a very interesting gossipy job. Um, (laughs) It prepared me for working in government later on in my career. But um, I, through a series of events, several of the folks that I had become close to that were pastors had um, gotten kicked out of the ministry. And it really hurt. You know, these folks were, um, had done some things that had, you know, sexual transgressions that had caused them to be kicked out. And it was a huge disappointment to me because these were people that were mentors. And, and I would say that I, um, in some cases, there was one or one and maybe two that I felt like were either a second dad to me, or maybe I had a little crush on during that time. Mm-hmm. And so it really ripped me apart. It just, the, the whole notion that they were thrown out of the ministry and, you know, was I, close to these people anymore? No, I really wasn't. But it caused me to do a lot of soul searching. And it hurt. It just hurt. And I don't think this, it was a young psychologist training to be a psychologist. And he was kind of an awkward counselor. And we get to the end of the term and he, uh, and it's my last session and we we're not going to meet anymore after that. He's moving off to finishing his doctorate and I'm moving on to the next thing. And he's, he says, I've had my supervisor listen to all the recordings of our sessions. And he said, we've concluded that we believe that you were molested when you were a kid. And I was like, really? How could that be? I don't remember this. And Were you offended? No, no. I was more taken aback. Like, really? Who would have done that? I wasn't offended and I, and surprisingly, I didn't disbelieve. I just sort of suspended and froze around that. Um, I didn't try to deny it. I was just puzzled, shocked. Um, the bigger shocks would come later. So what did, did they act when you said, why would you think that? I mean, what, what, how did they respond? Did they give you like concrete examples or what? This guy was awkward and so I don't, and I probably was awkward too, because I was so embarrassed to be grieving so much for these people that weren't mm. really that close to me. Mm-hmm. So I felt awkward. He felt awkward. And I don't think I knew how to ask all those questions, but I would say that I did ask and I said, and he said, I think it's because we feel that your reaction to these things doesn't match what happened. And so we're questioning that, but we feel pretty sure this happened to you. Wow. And I just, my head was spinning. I wasn't denying. I didn't go there. Um, so it was within a week that I was 
home for the summer and it was my last summer home before graduating. And I, within a week or two, I had just told my parents and I, I had already formed a list of people that it could have been because by that time I was thinking, well, these are professionals. They probably, this probably did happen to me. And I, I immediately two out of the probably, probably three out of the four that I came up with were people that I knew didn't do it because I didn't have an aversion to them. I didn't feel fear as a kid. And my dad was one I knew hadn't done it. Um, an uncle that I was very close to as a kid hadn't done it. Um, there were a few other close adults. And, and then there was the one. There was one uh, young man who ended up living with us when I was two and a half years old um, for four months. And I seized on him. I seized on him. So before I told my parents, I, I said, I said to them, I think he molested me. Well, first, when you said, what did they say when you sat down? And did you say that the therapist at the, the counselor at school thinks that I was molested as a kid? Yes. And what was their response to that? Disbelief. Mm-hmm. Disbelief. They said we would have known. We would have known though my dad was a counselor, a therapist himself. Um, he was quite interested in, in hearing more about this. So he didn't try to shut me down. Um, and ironically, he also provided treatment for sex offenders. So he was interested in this topic. And my mom was very much in disbelief because she said, I would have known, Alice, I would have known, you know, you were a little person at that time. Uh, though we all felt uncomfortable by him, she especially felt uncomfortable with this young man. Um, he was a former client of my dad. We had moved from another state in the middle of the country to Oregon. And this young man graduated from high school. And as soon as he graduated, he hit the road and hitchhiked and landed on our doorstep. And this was the early 70s. And my parents were, my parents were you know, hospitable, giving, caring people who wanted to help. And, you know, as a parent today, I never would have allowed that. I I can think of so many parents that wouldn't have done that. But knowing what I know about my own parents, it doesn't surprise me a bit that they did that. What does surprise me is that um, my mom um, eventually came to believe this. um, And my dad did too. We all believed it. After Um, how long of a period of time? Oh, I believed it in my core within two or three weeks after telling them. I just knew it. I said, I know it. I know this happened. And I don't, I kind of said, I don't really care if you believe me or not. I know it happened. And, and then my dad said, well, I'll get you some counseling. So we lined up a counselor that would be um, a mind therapist for three years, um, who I started going to later within a few weeks after that. I mean, what was your response? I mean, did you have like a, a big reaction to that? that? The knowingness and? Well, yes, yes, it was shocking. Um, the bigger shock would come a month later, um, but it was shocking and I was in disbelief, but I knew in my heart that it had happened because I had started having flashbacks mm-hmm. when I was seven or eight years old. And this suddenly started to make some sense. And some of the flashes I was having in my 20s when I was in this counseling 
and I was telling the counselor about them. And I had forgotten, of course, you know how you forget a lot when trauma, you're dealing yeah. with trauma issues. I'd forgotten that I told the counselor this, but um, I would see a face right over my face. I would see that in a dark room and I would see this face that was very close to my face and it scared the shit out of me. And I would say, I see this regularly. And obviously I was having some flashes at that time. And I'd had flashes off and on since age seven or eight and all the way through high school. And I had told my mom at one point that I I sometimes I will hear things. This makes me sound like I'm schizophrenic or something. <laughs> I will hear voices and the voice, voices will distort. And instead of just being factual, it'll sound sarcastic or it'll mm. sound or the volume will be up or down. And sometimes I'll look at things and the, and the tree outside will shrink and get smaller and then get bigger. And I would tell her that. And I said, I said, mom, this has happened enough times that I know that if I can't stop it someday, someone's going to have to lock me up. I said that, mm. I remember saying that in high school and I, you know, you just move on. My mom didn't react um, as maybe they should have. They didn't say a word about it. They well, didn't especially ask, with your dad. They didn't ask much about it. And, uh, but meanwhile, I remember taking the SAT and I had one of those episodes right in the middle of the SAT. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop the test. I couldn't take it anymore. So I had been suffering all this time. And so for me to that summer, have a little bit of an explanation for why these flashes were coming suddenly made sense. Things were falling into place. And so fast forward a few weeks, um, one of my family members um, heard through the family grapevine that this had happened and that I was having some flashes and knew who it was that I was having flashes about. And um, I didn't know that this person knew but um, uh, at one point, uh, right before I was going to go back to college for the year, this person asked me to go have dinner. And I thought, this is a little unusual, but okay. So we got to talking and um, we talked about that. And this person said, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. And believed me, believed me. And that felt great. Well, the next thing that happened was this person said, well, I'm coming forward because I molested you. I molested you for many years. And I didn't remember. I didn't remember any of it. I didn't remember that this had happened to me in my own house. And that's the day my life changed forever. That's the day all my foundation crumbled under me because I'm getting tears right now just talking about it, because everything that I thought I knew wasn't true anymore, you know? Suddenly I realized that, oh my gosh, I've been violated. And after a little while, I, I tallied up the years that it had gone on, and it, it had been 15 years that I'd been molested. By another family member. Yeah, and I didn't know. I didn't know, but now, I mean, it didn't take long for my parents to realize that they had, it took me probably three weeks. To did tell they them. also, okay. Cause that was going to be my next question was then the, did they tell your parents or you were the ones that had to tell your parents? I told my parents, um, I was told by this person that if I told my parents 
there would be some nasty repercussions for me. So I was scared. Mm. Uh, I went to my first counseling session with my counselor and she believed me immediately, all of it, you know, and I needed that so badly. I really, by that, my parents weren't hundred percent believers in any of this, but she was. And I said, well, do I tell my parents or do I not? And she said, of course you tell your parents. And she laughed. She said, what can this person do to you? They've admitted that they did it and it's okay. It's going to be okay. And she said something like, she said, secrets fester and they destroy. And you can't have that destruction in your family and in your life. You do not need to let this fester. You need to tell your story. So I told and I curled up in a ball for about three weeks before I went to college and was pretty much in the fetal position for a lot. What was their response though? Shock, shock, much the same way I was though. It didn't take long for them to realize that there had been signs all along Mm. that it had happened and that they had not been paying attention to those things and deep shame. Um, my mom, um, went to therapy. Eventually I found out later she went through a suicidal phase where she just felt so guilty, guilty, awful, depressed. Did they apologize? Yes. Um, yes. I felt like my mom's reaction was a lot more genuine because I knew she was really hurting and she had within a year or so I found out that she had gone to counseling and I knew that in her heart, she was deeply saddened. Um, my dad didn't go get that help. He didn't get any help for himself. And I always felt like I had to take care of him. He would see that my counselor at his professional meetings from time to time. And he said, I would just feel guilty. I think she believes that I did it. And I mean, why is he? And I said, dad, I've already told you, you didn't do it. I know you, you know, I, you didn't do it. And I know you didn't do it. So why do you, of course, I wasn't rebellious back then, but obviously he was waiting for me to take care of him, you know, mm-hmm. to take care of his feelings around it, mm-hmm. his shame around it. He would call me when I was in college and going through my own pain. Um, he would call me right after seeing a client or two and would just call me out of the blue. And I never knew why it was kind of at odd times during the day. And, and later he told me, well, I just had a rough client and I needed to hear your voice, you know? So I, did I feel like that was bonding? Yes. But also I had a strong belief that he needed me to take care of him and to take care of his feelings. And I felt like I spent a lot of time taking care of my dad's feelings around this and his shame. Um, and so much so that I lost myself. I lost mm. and my, there wasn't the outrage that I would have hoped for with the other family member either. There wasn't outrage around that. Um, there was just kind of, ugh, this is horrible. And it wasn't, what I really wanted was some good old fashioned outrage. <laughs> That's what I wanted. I wanted. And somebody- did you cut off uh, the relationship with that other family member at that point? I did for, um, went, I went about four months not going home at all. I was in college, so, and I didn't go home for the holidays, uh, both Thanksgiving and Christmas, which was a big deal. 
Um, maybe I went home for Christmas, but uh, there was some group counseling that was arranged for, for us to get together before I came home for the first time, which was good. I really appreciated that. My counselor and this other person's counselor got together and we talked through some things. But as far as I know, that's the only counseling that had happened um, with this family member. And so, but it really was, it felt like my job was to stay quiet, protect people, protect people's feelings, and just sweep it, sweep it under the rug um, to keep the peace, because keeping the peace was much more important, maybe to me, I felt safer keeping the peace, and that's what I did. Uh, my mom did help me. One of the things she did that was so powerful, she had kept all of these calendars from dating back to the late 60s. And so she had helped me piece together um, when she had gone away for the weekend with my dad, when this young man was living with us when I was two. And they had left us alone with him to be the babysitter. And so I knew during that four month period, how many times we had been left alone with him. So, so anyway, my mom was a great help um, to me in my healing from the first, the first offender. And then really I felt for my own sake um, and for the sake of the family and the peace of the family, I just sort of had to get over the, the other piece. And it wasn't until much later that I uh, started working on EMDR and healing from both of these pretty traumatic things. What was the environment like in your home like other than that, or like when you went off to college before they told you at the end, we think you've been molested. How would you have described your upbringing? Very good. Very good. Um, we weren't rich, um, but we always had fun things. We were always out doing outdoor things, camping and whitewater rafting and all the things you get to do when you live in the North Pacific Northwest um, we had an abundant life, um, not a lot of money, but always had things to do and play and people to see and, and a close family that lived in the Seattle area. So it felt very secure and very good though. There was this part of me that felt broken and it, it was around all those, um, triggers and memories that I was getting and flashes that I was getting. I felt different all the time. And we moved around a little bit as well. So I moved, we moved when we were, when I was in fifth grade, we moved to a different school. So it, it just changed everything when you move schools. Mm -hmm. So it was a good upbringing. But what I know now is that I remember my best friend in high school came to dinner for the first time. And my mom served dinner, uh, kind of a traditional uh, mother, father, kind of relationship where she did all the meal preparation, but she at some point would serve the dinner and then she'd get up and go to her bedroom and she didn't stay with us while we were eating. And my friend asked me, does she do that every day? And oh yeah, she does that. She never wants to eat because she's afraid she'll gain weight. Mm. And she says, that's not normal. <laughs> so there were some hints. Um, and it was at that point that I realized my mom was depressed. She mm. was in her room a lot. And there was a lot of pain around 
and I know it now just around it. I didn't deal with my dad until this fall. I didn't really come to terms with the fact that my dad was quite abusive um, until this fall. And that was really my, my bottom. But knowing that, knowing that my mom, my mom was depressed. She was always sick. She was um, somebody I couldn't really depend on uh, very much because you never knew if she was going to be able to do it, be, be present or not because of her illnesses. Mm-hmm. And it was depressing. She was never tuned in to me like you might expect a mother to be tuned in. And my dad wasn't either. He was working really hard. And I had to ask them to go to my athletic events. They didn't, it was, didn't come naturally to them that they should go as, as it does all parents today, you know, as having raised a couple kids myself, we were expected to go to our kids' games and our kids' uh, practices even. You, you have to sit on the sidelines and go. It's good. And it was fun. But anyway, so there were some things I missed and I realized that in college and I went through my, my mother anger, um, probably more in my twenties and then, um, didn't really address things with my dad until this past year. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So what happened is this fall. So this fall, occasionally every few years, I would look up the person who raped me when I was a little person and I would look him up and um, just kind of stalk him on the internet and find out where he was. And I uh, always expected to read something about him. He was involved in IT. So he was on somewhere on the internet. I could find him. Well, I I found an obituary this fall in September and it was a long obituary. And I felt like it had been written just for me. It gave a lot of detail about his life. And he had died four years prior. And he had had a stroke and had lived the last eight years of his life in a care facility. Mm. And he couldn't speak. And he was a prolific, he was a pretty good artist when we knew him. Um, do a, did a lot of drawings and doodling and everything. He became a prolific painter in this small town where he lived and was even featured in the newspaper. And, but I felt just shock first that he was dead. And then like, wow, it's over now. You can move on, Alice. You can really move on. I had felt healed a lot of healing from my EMDR, mm-hmm. but this was this was something special knowing that he wasn't, he wasn't around anymore. He couldn't scare me anymore. I could close that door. It felt good. Uh, And just the justice around the idea that he was stuck in his body for eight years and couldn't express himself in words. I mean, I was so grateful that someone loved him enough to write such a loving obituary. Um, However, I was grateful that our higher power or someone had seen fit that there was some justice in this world and that he had some time of reflection at the end of his life. So anyway, that, that was meaningful to me. I brought it up with my dad and I said, he's dead, he's gone and it feels good. And it feels like there's some justice here. My dad's reaction was almost no reaction. And 
granted, he was, he had been diagnosed with the return of his brain cancer and he was dying, my dad. We didn't know that it was terminal until November or so. But around that time is when I started discovering that, oh my gosh, my dad's an alcoholic. <laughs> Can you believe it? I didn't know. <laughs> but he was an alcoholic. He'd probably been an alcoholic for decades. And now I see signs. But he became very angry with me. And he had a slurred voice when he did. And my reaction was, was I guess because I knew he was alcoholic, I, it changed my reaction to it. I felt like, oh, he's not in his right mind. He is under the control of some substances. So this isn't right. There is so much not right about this. I mean, I had suspected things weren't right and that he was narcissistic and some of these things and that he didn't really care about my feelings. But now, now I knew why. Hmm. And it was a, it was a very, I mean, I, I don't know that I curled up and needed I needed to take a, at least one day of off work. It was that impactful for me. And that was my bottom. That was my realization. And my brother and I had had a chance to talk about his relationship. My dad had bullied him all growing up and bullied him and bullied him and just, just, just uh, verbally mostly and would grind him into the ground. And I grew up around that. And my reaction as a very poor sister was, you idiot, why are you walking into that? You're leaving yourself wide open for that. You know, that was my reaction at the time. But as I aged, I became a lot more compassionate for my brother and what he had dealt with. And so I felt safe in the last few years as I was being a caregiver for my dad in his, as he was aging, um, telling my brother how my dad was starting to treat me. And he said, well, I've been through that for decades, as you know. So, so we became more bonded around that. And what I'll say is it hurt. It just hurt a lot to learn that he was an alcoholic. And to finally, he had been so invincible and so powerful, such a powerful force in my life. And to realize that he was weak and that this, these things weren't normal that he was doing. I had been such a people pleaser all those years and wanted to please him and make him happy. And it, he was an alcoholic. He was under the influence most of the time when he died, he was still drinking a lot um, all day at that point. And he knew, and I knew, and he was in hospice and I had an arrangement with the doctor that we were still going to let him drink a bit. And he was, he was enjoying his beer on a sponge when he couldn't swallow. That's, at the end. Mm. And that's what happens. I think people are addicted. But it was hard. That period was hard. And being his caregiver at a time when he was lashing out at me at, from time to time. And it was it was a difficult period. So I can't remember what I was reading it in, but it's about basically the how we idealize, you know, our parents as a way to protect ourselves. You know, it's like too scary to see them for who they truly are. And we'd rather blame ourselves or just think otherwise. There was a young or not young. There was a person on your podcast two weeks ago and now forgotten his name, but he had a quote that really caused it shook me. He said, it wasn't safe to be me. Hmm. He said that, And I, 
I related to that and I thought about that and I cried over that for about a day because it didn't feel safe to be me in my house. I could not be me and I didn't even know that I couldn't be me. I didn't know that that there was this grief inside of me um, because no one knew what had happened to me when I was a little person and no one knew that it was still going on, you know? So it, it was, I didn't feel safe in my skin and I didn't feel safe in my home. Uh, so I'm just now, the real me is coming out for the first time in my life. And to some extent, I owe it to you in the podcast, you know, for giving me I, I've known that since 1990 that nothing was going to be the same after my family member told me what had happened. I knew that everything was going to be different and my whole life was going to be different. But to now have a community of people that I can share with and that, uh, that understand the pain that is associated with this condition that we have with this nervous system that we acquired through this trauma, it is powerful. I think a lot of us tend to overshare. And I thought about that a lot. And it, it's, I have overshared in my life. Um, but really, it's because we haven't had until pretty recently, a community of people that we can talk to about this. And that's what you created, Andrea. And it's so powerful that you've done that. And, and there are organizations, um, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families as well. And there is this great book, um, the Loving Parent Guidebook, which mm-hmm. has really been so instrumental to my healing as of late. Because I think for years, my inner teenager has been running the show. Mm-hmm. And um, I... I like that inner teenager. I like that she's rebellious. I like that she probably, if if I would have let her, she would have dressed up like Joan Jett, you know? Like, <laughs> like happy birthday, I Joan. Day of Joan Jett with her <laughs> middle finger up. That would have been me. If, if you could see my inner teenager, that's her. Um, and I respect her a lot, but she shouldn't be running the show. <laughs> and I'm learning a lot about how I can uh, reparent myself and be just be a lot calmer in my skin and it feels great. Do you want to talk a little bit about how stuff has shown up for you in work? Yes. Yes, I would, because that is so powerful and I feel like it's an area that needs a lot more investigation, study, and community. More of us need community around that. Um, I have worked for dysfunctional bosses most of my career. And, and in fact, all of them have had issues. One, only one was a recovering alcoholic and he was my best boss um, over the years. I have moved, I've had my running shoes on when it comes to my career. When I hit some, some uh, stumbling block, I move on. And at some point you get to your forties and fifties and you kind of have to settle down. <laughs> and, um, and I've hit, I hit a rough spot about five years ago where I'd had a string of bosses that were, were not a good match for me. And some of them had substance issues. Some of them had other addictions, process addiction. Were they males? Some were males. And then one, two have been females. Uh-huh. And I can't say that one gender was more difficult than the other. Well, I was just thinking with the comparison with your dad. I was just thinking about that. 
Yeah, I think the 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 thread that I have come come about is that I have been in repetition compulsion, mm-hmm. um, and I have been an actor or reactor rather than an actor in mm-hmm. those where I just go and um, I am setting up insane situations. I'm repeating the same scenarios again and again and again that I had in my childhood where I was trying to people please because people pleasing worked for me as a kid. It worked, worked beautifully. And then to see it fall flat um, when I was a people pleaser and, uh, and some would probably say I was a brown noser in some situations. And, and I was kept asking myself, well, why isn't this working? You know, well, now I know there were some whole bunch of uh, social cues I was missing. (laughs) The other part of that is that much like my dad, I was quite critical when I would get into those situations and someone had wronged me, I would say, well, I did right, then why, you know, and I would talk behind people's back and I was a hot mess in different situations. I was a hot mess. Sometimes I would get out before I was too much of a hot mess. Um, but it, it does, what I will say is that I've always had, um, a boss situation where it wasn't a good fit first, you know, where that part wasn't a good fit. There was a, usually an addiction that might've reminded me of my dad and his behavior that would cause this repetition compulsion to start. And, and then it would just go sideways. And my, what was my part of it? I think my part of it was, I was judgmental critical and I did a lot of gossiping behind people's back and now I know how destructive and toxic that was um, and it's it's hurt me a lot um, I'm proud of myself in this very last uh, work situation I had that I consciously tried to be resilient through some difficult times and to get through it um, uh, my supervisor ended up retiring and um, I wanted to get past that. I wanted to get past her retirement date and be able to have known that I survived that and survived the very difficult period that I got through. My dad passed away right in the middle of that. So it was a very challenging time. I didn't feel like the organization, there were a few people in the organization that were compassionate, but it wasn't that compassionate of an environment. Um, but I had to survive and I did. And I found another job that allows me to work from home. And for right now, given that I'm a main caregiver for my mom who has dementia, this is the right time for me to be in an environment where I feel safe. Uh, My nervous system is calmer than it's ever been in my life. And it's great. Uh, It's great. But I, this whole notion of workplace bullying, there are some good laws out there. Oregon doesn't have as strong laws as it should. Um, I think that's coming in a future legislative session or two, but um, there are some states that protect workers from workplace bullying, but there needs to be more attention on that. And, and um, it is so um, for the workers, it is so distracting and it really activates our nervous systems quite profoundly. And then there's a lot of work to do for me to go back and kind of, unravel what what was really going on there and what was my part in all of it so and to try to improve we're I mean that's a it's I'm a work in progress yes well it's a lifelong process (laughs) yeah I don't want to feel great shame over it because I know there was a fit component that wasn't right I talked about this recently with you is that 
there's been a lot of talk about relationships and how some people may have a broken picker syndrome about picking a good partner, um, a good boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, and then, you know, I think I've had a broken picker as it relates to workplaces. And how do you pick a good workplace? Well, there have been some where the flags were just waving right in front of my face. And even my husband was telling me, what are you doing? Why are you going there? That makes no sense. And it was just frankly, because they wanted me and I was just going to go because they wanted me and, and I wasn't thinking much about it. And I should have picked up on the cues much earlier. So talk about ways in which you've grown. Cause I mean, there's just so many examples, but what would be something that, that you'd want to note on or a situation that you've handled differently? I mean, I think you just talked about that with leaving this job much more gracefully, but you have another example. I think for me, it's slowing down and grieving really that whole, I wrote a few notes about uh, books that have been quite um, instrumental for me and many of them have been recommended by you. But when I read Melody Beattie's book, um, Codependent No More, it made, I just read that and I said, that's me, that is me. And I can't believe I hadn't seen it earlier because I've been at this for a long time, this healing journey. Um, but it was me. It is me. And I remember her writing, there were two things that she wrote that have been pretty instrumental. The first thing she said, I've listened to it in an audio form. Mm-hmm. So, And I loved her voice inflection or the, the narrator's voice inflection when she said it. She said, you know what? Recovery can be fun. You know, it's mm-hmm. fun because we're free. We get to free ourselves. And that's fun. And I thought that's exactly how I look at it. Recovery is fun because you're you're kind of uh, moving out of this bondage that you felt earlier. And then the other one I liked a lot that that made a big difference was her whole notion of feel your feeling, catch the feeling, and then release it. Catch and release. And it's a simple, simple notion. Um, this whole notion that uh, Pete Walker talks about, and you'll miss it if you don't. If kind of again, I listened to that one on audio you have to listen closely, but he says, some things are just good enough and you can't, you don't have to have perfection. It's just good enough and good enough. Parenting is good enough parenting. And you just have to stop and accept the good enough. And I like that because I've been striving for perfection my whole life. And I've been ashamed of some of my behavior. I think in the past, um, even as early as two months ago, I would have been paralyzed in shame about so many things. Um, But now I'm able to say, you know what? I didn't choose my workplaces. I had a broken picture. So I didn't find the right fit for me. There is a good fit for me out there. And there is a good relationship dynamic in a marriage. There's a good family relationship. And I just needed to find it. Mm -hmm. And there's a fit for everyone. There's serenity for everyone. And not um, kind of bathing in shame and letting Mm -hmm. myself get so so drowning in the place that's, I guess that was what I saw about my dad is that by the end of his life, he was drowning in his shame and he was, and he was drinking himself, drowning in in alcohol to cover up the shame that he had felt his whole life over a variety of things, many of which to me weren't a big deal, but he was still feeling a lot of shame around things from his childhood. And so anyway, Um, So what does healing look like? I think it's just um, allowing myself to stop and grieve for the things I've lost. Um, 
to let go of my dad. I spread his ashes in the last few weeks and letting him go and feeling uh, free for the first time in a long time. And, and that bottle of booze. Yeah. <laughs> Does everyone know that story? Do you want me you to should, tell it? Yeah, please do. Yeah. So that day I, um, I had another event to go to in the morning and some driving, a lot of driving involved to get to both places. So I went, I was talking to my dad the whole time and uh, listening to James Taylor music because we both liked it. And I was, had his ashes in the backseat and um, I had gone to my first event and then I had gotten called back to the community. I left something where I where I had just been and I had to drive back about a half hour to get there. And I had bought some original art from an artist and I stopped at her house and we got to chit chatting and I stayed there an hour and a half. And finally I felt so bonded with her that I decided I would tell her why, where I was headed next. I was, I'm going to go spread my dad's ashes. And so she said, hold on before you go, I want to give you something. So she went and found her um, in her art studio. She had this little, chiller for bubbly beverages and she came back with a bottle of champagne a chilled bottle of champagne and she wrapped it up so it would stay cool and she said you need to go celebrate with your dad when you spread his ashes and so did she know that he was an alcoholic <laughs> yes i told her okay <laughs> so, so i thought well this is interesting um i wonder if she you know i'm not a big drinker uh but i i don't i don't have that uh, addiction at this point yeah. in my life. So I, uh, so I thought, well, and I'm driving, it didn't feel safe at all. So it felt a little weird, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to trust. I'm just going to open up that bottle and I'll figure it out from there. Maybe I'll share it with the people that are, might be nearby on the, on the river. My dad wanted his ashes spread along the riverbank. There were some fly fishermen there. So I thought maybe I'll give the bottle to them. But I ended up opening it. I spread his ashes. I said a prayer for him. I cried a little bit. And then I said, you need to be free now. And, and then I opened the bottle and I took a swig and then I poured all the ashes right next to all the, all the bottle contents right next to his ashes. And <laughs> I thought this guy is going to get drunk and this is going to be the best day of his life. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> great. And I, most importantly, this artist, I mean, she just made a, that made a huge difference. It was such a caring thing for her to do. She reached out to me just this week wants to get together again. So nice. nice. So what are three things that you like about yourself? I think I have a pretty sly, fun sense of humor. I agree. Uh, <laughs> it sneaks up on you. It's not mm -hmm. right out there. I, I tend to be the straight man. Um, you gotta be, yeah, you gotta listen carefully. Yeah. I, someone sets me up and then I, I come in with the, the punchline. Um, I am very committed to my family. Um, I'm really proud of the, this is going to make me tear up. I am so bonded with my mom mm. and I never would have expected that. She is, has dementia now and we moved her into her own facility about, oh, about eight months before my dad died. And my brother and I were both very opposed to that because we thought my dad was betraying her, my mom. And she turned into a new human being, being by herself and in her own living environment where she was the center of attention and didn't have to pay, play second fiddle. She didn't have to hide anymore. She didn't want to, wasn't set in front of the TV to just 
you know, it was, she was, she was losing her mind. And my dad was wanted to continue on with his lifestyle, but in fairness, he was dying of cancer himself and he needed more. So he left her at this facility and she's blossomed into this fun, happy person. And no, not everything she says makes sense, but she's funny as hell. And she gives me joy every day. So I worry sometimes that I'm becoming enmeshed Mm. in my relationship with her. And I talked to my sponsor recently about that. And she assured me that, no, Alice, what you're doing sounds healthy because I'm getting so much out of it. And so I'm proud of my relationship with my mom and how closely we become. And I'm proud to be a grandparent of two. And these kids are just so fun. And my kids are fun. My kids have an amazing sense of humor. All four of them do. And I'm glad to be part of their lives. Mm. And so what is a hope or dream that you have for your future? I want to be joyous, happy, and free. I, I want to be in touch with my authentic self um, for the rest of my life. I want to have that connection. I want to have a calm nervous system. I want to take myself out of harm's way as much as I can so that I can be peaceful for the rest of my life. That's what I want. And I think I'm going to get it. I have a really good family situation that I think will help me get there. So that, and with the support that is available through ACA and your support groups, uh, I really feel a sense of community now that I didn't have. And it's just going to allow a lot more growth in a faster, more deliberate way than I've ever had before. Well, you're a very special woman. Me lady. Alice, well, Alice joined the call today with an eye patch on. <laughs> Ahoy, uh, shit shows. Ahoy, <laughs> Andrea. <laughs> Are we going to have a talk like a pirate group one day, a Patreon group? Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to have like, yeah. We also need to have like a karaoke night. That'd be oh. fun. Get everyone out of their comfort zones. I will survive. That's my favorite. Yeah, not good. What is that? Gloria Gaynor? Yes. Yes. Or Brick House. We could do that too. Brick House. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Alice. This was lovely. Well, that wraps up Shit Show Saturday. As always, sign up for the Patreon. That is where I host weekly support groups. And it's where you say thanks, Andrea, for all that you do. Patreon.com slash adult child. Follow me on TikTok and Instagram at adult child pod and give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. And I will see y'all shit shows on Wednesday. Bye. Let it all go.